It is so good to be here with you today. My goal is to give you at least the second worst sermon I've ever heard on Revelation. I don't want to be the worst sermon ever because the worst sermon I ever heard on Revelation was in the year 1988. I was a boy and the sermon was called 88 Reasons Why Christ is Coming Back in 88. The worst sermon I have ever heard on Revelation based on the worst way you could ever look at it treating it like a series of numbers that could be tallied up to tell me he's coming back in 88, probably in the next week, altar call time. Man, that sermon damaged me. But I'm so grateful to be part of this church where Pastor Joel has led us through a three-week sermon series on Revelation that has been life-giving. It's been biblically accurate. Uh, It's been a real teaching that enables us to then take the scripture for ourselves and go ahead and use it in our devotions. So I'm so grateful for that. We've seen that Revelation refers to events that the early church was facing, to spiritual realities that we still face today, and to a future end-time intensification of the struggle between good and evil. I'd like to talk about that end-time portion today. But I hope that not only will you get more tools to help you read Revelation and get its message for yourself, but I hope you'll leave today with a profound sense of optimism. Revelation means unveiling, to look behind the curtains and see what's going on in our world. In this sense, Revelation is the conspiracy theory of all conspiracy theories, for it reveals that Satan is at work behind the scenes in our world and will continue to intensify his efforts to co-opt political power and combine it with compromised spirituality to lead the world astray. It also, though, doesn't just reveal a satanic conspiracy. Greater than that, Revelation reveals a divine plan to triumph over all evil and to bring about the transformation of our universe through Jesus Christ. Pastor Joel helped us last week to be free of fears of lesser conspiracies, such as the ones that surround the mark of the beast. How many of you were relieved to find out that you will never inadvertently Take the mark of the beast. You won't go, oh my goodness, I thought it was just an air miles card. I was just getting points, but it's been tracking every purchase. I haven't been able to buy or sell without it. Ah, I think I took the mark of the beast. And as foolish as that sounds, because we're used to that, we can get wrapped up in all kinds of things that fill us with fear. But the early church faced the mark of the beast in terms of having to say, Caesar is Lord and denying Jesus. And it was very clear for them. And so if ever something like that comes for us, it will be just as clear. And so we're freed from that fear. When it comes to end times, though, which I like to speak with you about today, people think about the tribulation. Revelation does speak of a period of intense struggle between good and evil, immediately preceding the return of Jesus Christ. And it goes along these lines. Satan will attack believers by raising up an antichrist who will use political power against believers. He's pictured as the beast. He will be supported by a miraculous false prophet who who directs worship to the antichrist, and he's pictured as a second beast. This will all be done in partnership with the world's culture of immorality and systems of greed, and that's pictured as the great prostitute. But even these partners in evil will turn on each other. 
Revelation 17, 6 says, The beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. The renowned sociologist René Girard notes that evil can't help but escalate and eventually consume itself. And so that's part of what we see in Revelation. Revelation says that this final tribulation will last 3.5 years, or at least the part that would be most difficult. Whether it is literally three and a half years is a tough question. And you can appreciate the toughness of the question when I ask you another question. Are you ready for my question? Does Jesus have seven eyes? What do you think? Does he have seven eyes? Well, he does. Revelation 5, 6 says, Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if he had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be really uncomfortable about meeting the seven-eyed Jesus. Which eye do you look into? A little disconcerting. And is Jesus really a lamb? And are there really seven spirits of God? I thought it was just one Holy Spirit. And the Bible does say there's one Holy Spirit. There is only Jesus who became human and remains human for all eternity. What these are are metaphors that have come to life. A lamb who was slain. He's covered with the Holy Spirit. Like seven, the seven eyes. And the seven spirits of God are pictured out in their completeness, that they go into all the earth. You see, in Revelation, numbers are not statistics. They are symbols of spiritual reality. And visions are not documentaries. They are metaphors of spiritual reality. Some of Revelation's favorite numbers are 12 and 7. 12 because there were 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles. And 7 because there was the seven days of creation. It's a number of completeness. So a vision of 12,000 people saved from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000 in total, is not a quota of salvation. It is a picture that the completeness of all God's people have come, uh, that the completeness of all God's people have been saved and brought in and probably includes both Jew and Gentile in the new Israel. In fact, this people are envisioned in other parts of Revelation as a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. Likewise, the New Jerusalem, it's pictured as this massive cube, 12,000 units long, 12,000 wide, and 12,000 high. Well, how can that be? I'm looking forward to a mansion in, in heaven. I don't want a cubicle without an interior, with no window and no open sky over my head. Is this for real? What it is, is the Holy of Holies in the original temple was a perfect cube. It was where God's space was. And so it says, it's just saying in a very symbolic, beautiful way that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be where God dwells. We're going to be with him, almost living in God. And it's going to be an explosion of God's presence to massive proportions. That's what that vision is giving us. It is not giving us a blueprint for some very poor city planning. The numbers are to create impressions not a calculation. And anytime you're reading someone in Revelation that spends a lot of time on numbers, stop reading because they're leading you the wrong path. So when we hear about 3.5 years of intense tribula tribulation, the important thing isn't, is it exactly three and a half years? It's that it's half of a seven. It's incomplete. In other words, evil rages at full force for a while, but God doesn't let it complete its mission 
It doesn't, God doesn't let evil win. Revelations 3, 13, 5, excuse me, says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous, blasphemous words and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months or three and a half years. But he's limited. The symbolic vision of this tribulation, you can read about it yourself in Revelation chapter 13 and 17. But these same events are also summarized in a very literal fashion in the letter from Paul to uh, Thessalonians, his second letter. In this letter, Paul calls the Antichrist the man of lawlessness. For the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The Lord Jesus will do that. So that's the outline. Now what is God doing during the tribulation? Well, God's doing what God always does with evil. He is judging it. He is primarily judging the beast, the false prophet, the great prostitute, these systems of evil. He is judging that, but he is also judging people who have attached themselves to that and defected from true worship in God. Now, he, he, you'd think, okay, he's going to judge them. Boom, it's all over. They're gone. But that's not the picture in Revelation. The picture in Revelation is of stages of judgment. Seven bowls of wrath, seven trumpets, one after the, uh, after the other. And at each stage in the judgment, God pauses to see if there's repentance. Because God's goal is not to rid the world of those he disagrees with. It is to convert the world, to become his people. That's his heart. But the heartbreaking thing in Revelation is that most of the time, the people simply dig in in the rebellion. If you look in Revelation 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of silver and gold and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This refrain comes up several times in Revelation. You see, these people, like us, they curse God for what he's doing, acting like he's the problem and that they're not the problem. There is an insanity in our human hearts, a rebellion against God that is so irrational that we seek to reject our maker and then blame him for the problems that ensue. Now, what are believers doing during the tribulation? That's a matter of debate. Popular Christian books and movies depict Christ coming back before the period of tribulation and catching up or rapturing the Christians out of the world so they don't have to go through that time. They base that idea on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. In the Latin, it was rapture. They will be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, to meet him. And so we will always be with him forever. There are three difficulties with this view, though, 
No difficulties whatsoever with the scripture, but three with the view that is based on it. The first is that the word meet that we saw in that scripture, that we'll, we'll meet the Lord in the air, is a very technical term. If someone important was coming to your town, journeying along, then you would send out a delegation to meet the important person, welcome them, and walk with them back into town. So when it says we're going to meet the Lord in the air, the Lord's coming down, we meet him, and we escort him back to earth. And if the reverse was true, that he came down and did sort of a half touchdown and grabbed people and went back, he's still got to come a second time. So that'd be the second, second coming. This gets to be theologically problematic. But the biggest problem with this view is that Revelation from start to finish shows believers going through tribulation, both now and in its final intensification. Revelation repeatedly calls on believers to witness for Jesus during the tribulation. In Revelation 11, a metaphor is given of God's people being like two faithful witnesses. These witnesses are connected to God directly by the Holy Spirit. It pictures it like they're olive oil lamps, and they're connected by tubes to this giant olive oil tree, just pumping in the fuel. If you want to bring the metaphor to modern times, it's like being a generator who's directly connected to the Irving Oil Refinery. You're not going to run out of fuel. And so this vision shows that God's Holy Spirit is just pumping into Christians in a special way during the final tribulation. They are actually protected from the judgments that God is putting upon the earth. In the same way that when God judged the Egyptians in the Old Testament to free Israel, the plagues didn't touch God's people. Well, that same uh, thing happens in Revelation. Revelation 7 says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So not only are we protected from those judgments, but there is a substantial level of protection from Satan's direct attacks on Christians during the tribulation. Not completely protected, but protected so that Christians can do what they're supposed to do, witness. In Revelation chapter 11, the witness of the two witnesses is so intense, it's driving the whole world crazy. And at the very last moment when they have completed their witness, near the end of the tribulation period, it is permitted that the beast is able to martyr them, to kill them. But after three and a half days, they come to life again and are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then the end comes. Getting the gospel out is this great theme of Revelation. Take a look at Revelation chapter 14. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to all those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is the gospel that Jesus' disciples preached when they were anointed by the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. And we celebrate how the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the original 12 disciples and other disciples around them. And they all spoke in other languages as the Holy Spirit enabled them so people from all nations were hearing the gospel. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 to these disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so poured out upon them was the Holy Spirit so they could witness. And Peter got up and said to the very first crowd to hear the gospel, you guys killed the author of life, but God raised him up from the dead. And you know, it didn't matter what the authorities did to Peter and the disciples. They could beat them. They could threaten them with death. They could imprison them. They just went on witnessing for Jesus. The first one to witness to death, to the point of death, was Stephen. And as people cast their stones at him, he had a vision of Jesus being with him. And he was faithful in his witness, even to death. One of the people throwing stones and being part of that was Paul. And later, Jesus personally appeared to Paul and said, Paul, now you're going to be my witness. And Paul was converted. Paul, Peter, and all the disciples gave their lives to the point of death for their witness. And the only one that didn't give his life was John, who writes us the book of Revelation. And he says, what are you doing, God? What's the plan? And I want to tell you that Revelation tells us that the same way that the gospel started, with the faithful witness of believers and God's miracles backing it up, is the same way that our world will end with a tremendous witness and a tremendous display of God's power. And it does result in getting through to people finally. Remember how I read that people weren't responding just to the judgments, but with the judgments plus the explanation of it in the witnesses, it says in Revelation eleven thirteen, and the rest were terrified and they gave glory to God in heaven. Instead of cursing him, they gave him glory. The response God was looking for. You see, God sends witnesses to explain to the world what he has done through Jesus. And when the world turns on the witnesses, they convict themselves. We have seen something horrific in the last few weeks as we have watched the video of George Floyd, Floyd <coughs> being murdered in an act of inhumanity. And it has exposed within us this racism within our society that we want to be finally done with. And in the same way, in Revelation, the inhumanity of people to the people of God, the martyrdom of the people of God will awaken their consciences and they will find that they have blood on their hands and it is not God who is in the wrong, it is clearly they that are in the wrong and they will respond, so many of them, to the gospel at that time. Revelation 12 says that the true believers... The ones who don't let their love run cold. Instead, the love gets hot. It says, and they have conquered him, that is the Antichrist, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Guys, this isn't just end time stuff. This is now time stuff. This is what's happening in China right now as Christians are being persecuted, imprisoned. This is what's happening even in India recently, as many have died for their faith. This has been an ongoing story in Islamic parts of the world where there is persecution in some of those areas. Christians have been giving up their lives or at least been prepared to do it. Unbelievers have been touched and convicted by it. God has showed up miraculously and millions and millions of people are coming to Christ in one of the biggest harvests we've ever seen. According to the biblical scholar Gordon Fee, Revelation talks about that pattern being displayed in its largest form at the end. 
Revelation 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the, on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The imagery is clear. The one sitting on the clouds, the Son of Man, that is always referring to Jesus in the New Testament. And the imagery of the harvest at the end of time was one that Jesus used many times in his parables. You can check it out yourself in Matthew 13, 30 or Luke 3, 17. But I want to direct you to one time when Jesus used this metaphor of a grain harvest for salvation so clearly. It was when he had met a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. She had believed in him, and through her witness, the whole village had come to believe in him. And in explanation, Jesus said to his disciples in John 4:35, Do not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Guys, so often when we think about the end times, we think of things just getting worse and worse. Then we get pessimistic. Then we retreat from the world and we say, it's so bad that the end must be near. But what Revelation actually shows us is, that the, is in the end that, yes, the bad gets worse, but the good gets even better. What could be better than the largest harvest of salvation that the world has ever seen? And you might say, how big is that harvest? Well, check it out in Revelation chapter 7. It says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, in Revelation 7, they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of of the Lamb. So what is the application of God's word for us today in Revelation? We may not be in an end time. We may just be in a time. But if God is that powerful and good in an end time, what does that mean for today? Well, it means to me for sure that it's time to sow, sow, sow the gospel. It is not a time to start thinking that evil's getting worse People aren't responsive. Satan's getting more and more tricky in what he's trying to do in our world. Let's just retreat and circle the wagons. No, my friends, it's a time to nurture relationships. It's a time to believe that God's going to pour out his spirit on your family and the people around you. It's time to witness and invest in the kingdom of God. Because even if bad gets worse, the good gets better. And guys, it is a time to be filled with anticipation 
of the transformation that God is going to bring on this universe. All that is old will be gone. And the one who sits upon the throne says, Behold, I'm making everything new, brand new. And we have the foretaste of that, that living water of life from God. We have that in our hearts if we've opened our hearts to the Spirit of God. He's made us pure and white in our spirits. We're ready to stand before God. And it is transforming our minds. It is transforming our character. It's changing our relationships. And through Jesus Christ, we are ready to bring transformation as far as we can to this world. Because it is in the transformation that we bring through the gospel and in the power of the advance of the gospel and the power of the advance of the church that finally Satan is fooled into making a big mistake and taking all that he has to resist it. And when he does that, he is destroyed. Church, we are on the offense. It is Satan who will be on the defense in the end. And even the tribulation is his last desperate attempt to win. But he will be destroyed by the breath for the mouth of Jesus Christ when he returns. So no matter what time we find ourselves in, it's a good time. The steadfast love and mercy of God is enough. No matter what time your family is in, God is enough. He is enough for your kids. He is enough for the future. We are not a people without hope. We are a people of optimism because we know that we follow the risen one, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. He is a conqueror, and through him, we overcome.